I didn't come out to hang out with these neo-Nazis <laughs> at a pub. To Tony Jones. Yeah, to listen to something that's essentially just like as tedious as watching Q&A. <laughs> Is it on? Look, I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it... It is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Is It On? BuzzFeed, Australia's political podcast. My name is Alice Workman and I'm coming to you from Canberra. Joining me as he does each and every week from Sydney is Mark Stefano. Mark, we have... A huge guest on the show this week. I know I say that all the time, but uh, huge. I think that this week's guest is probably better known in Australia than most of the politicians we normally chat to. Yeah, it's John Safran, Alice. I'm super excited because most people out there will know John Safran from his TV documentaries, John Safran versus God, Race Relations, his radio show, Sunday Night Safran with Father Bob and on Triple J, or as the guy who actually rummaged around Ray Martin's bins on his TV show, The Lost Pilot. It's uh, it's it's trespassing a property. It's a private matter. It's got this nothing. This is on so, public property. No, my house is a private. My, my, that, that is pr- not private. I saw pub- you Public property. That's my property. Why go through my garbage? The teachers ring me up a moment ago saying that your hair goes through the garbage. Ray, your <laughs> show does that all the time. Your show goes through garbage. Your show goes through people's houses. Which particular garbage? Yeah, I remember watching uh, Music Jamboree in high school and uh, remember when he, he dressed up in 80s gear and went back to his his high school um, danced to Footloose in the playground and he also he also did a lot of singing and he created that band Dewtown and they sung the song We're Going Down to Dewtown. It's worth a YouTube look, I reckon. <laughs> um, but first up this week is our Fast Five. These are the stories that we think you need to know from Australian politics. Number one is terror attacks and internment. For people who are listening overseas, you may have heard about the London terror attacks, but we also had one down here in Melbourne earlier this week. It's been a really awful seven days, but there has been some pretty strong reaction and none more so than in the mainstream media with some prominent figures calling for, wait for it, it's the hot button word, internment. Now, internment is a policy that involves like detaining a certain group for political reasons, justifying it with safety concerns. Now, if you think back to Australia's history of internment, there were thousands of Italians, Greeks and Japanese interned in World War II. Yeah, onshore in Australia. That's right. So I spoke to the guy behind the whole idea, Jim Molan. He is the man who designed the Stop the Boats policy, the really controversial immigration policy that Australia tows back uh, people who come out here by boat, who actually said that to get the people on the terror watch list, we need to put them before a secret tribunal and they could be detained for a, det- like a temporary period of time. So this idea was actually jumped all over by Australia's top-rating breakfast show, Sunrise, uh, its top-rating radio host, Alan Jones, its far-right political leader, Pauline Hanson. And there is one pressing issue about this, though. There is no such thing as a terror watch list per se. There are active investigations that ASIO are currently putting out in the field, but no group of people are actually being watched at all times 24-7. So it's an insane thing that Australia is debating this so openly in the media, especially considering when it was put forward by the Firebrand UK columnist Katie Hopkins on Fox News, it actually led to the Fox News host saying that the TV network does not condone any internment. 
Yeah, it's quite funny. There is no terror watch list, but as John Saffron will talk about uh, a little bit later, uh, he spoke to some people who were on a no-fly list. So there are there are people that um, uh, the Australian government has tagged as being uh, uh, sympathetic with ISIS or uh, wanting to go and, and fight in the Middle East, and they're on a no-fly list, but they're not on a terror watch list. That's right. What's number two? Okay, so number two is that this week, the board of the Indian mining company Adani gave the green light for the first stages of the controversial $16 billion mega mine in Queensland Galilee Basin to go ahead. Now, this is six years after they first applied for the mine to be built. And they've effectively, it's very strange wording, but they've given themselves the green light to go ahead with the mine. It's very odd. Um, good now, on you, Adani. Yeah, good on you for yeah, having a go. Good on you guys for, for doing a publicity stunt basically now if you don't know much about the carmichael mine here's the cliff notes it uh will produce up to 16 million tons of coal a year which will be shipped from the galilee basin through the great barrier reef to india where it will be used to provide electricity for up to 100 million people adani say it will create around 10,000 jobs for queenslanders but that claim has been contested even by adani's own expert who testified in court that maybe it will only create 1,464 jobs so there's a bit of a question mark over how many jobs this mine will actually create. And there's been huge infighting within the Labor Party over the mine, the left and the right. Federal Labor leader Bill Shorten says he's pro-jobs uh, that the mine will create, no matter how many there are, but he's anti the federal government loaning Adani the $900 million they've asked for to build the train line to cut the coal from the mine to the coast. Now, despite the big song and dance this week, the project is actually no closer to getting started than when it was uh, first proposed six years ago. And that's because Adani don't actually have financing. So the four big banks in Australia and others from around the world have all refused to loan Adani the money they need to build the mine. So what we saw this week was an announcement from Adani that they want to, the mine to go ahead and they're using it as kind of like a a bargaining chip and a, and, a, and a prodding mechanism to say to the federal government, give us that $900 million we're asking for. But of course, scientists and environmental groups say that the mine is a death sentence for the Great Barrier Reef and uh, they're considering legal action to stop it. So despite everything that's happened this week, we're still not further ahead than we were last week with Adani. <laughs> well, number three is foreign donations. I swear to God, we've chosen the most exciting, engaging <laughs> topics to be talking about in the first Woo-hoo! part. It's been, a, it's been a great week. But but the issue of foreign donations actually screamed onto the agenda uh, with an amazing Four Corners investigation with Fairfax on Monday. It was funny because I was actually watching the show and I was like, yeah, yeah, we know all this. Chinese people give political donations. We're one of the only countries in the world that allow it. Mm. But then it was like, bam. There was this amazing revelation that a Chinese donor yanked a $400,000 donation when Labor's Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister Stephen Conroy, before the last election, stuck to an anti-China line on the South China Sea. Not only did they pull it, but then the next day, Labor Senator Sam Dastyari then allegedly held a press conference with the guy saying he supported China's line on the explosive issue. And it was the same bloke that paid Dastyari's travel bill. It is bonkers. And then it, you know, making sure that we just, like treat both sides of politics. Andrew Robb, who's the former trade minister, has been revealed to have taken a job with the Chinese company that leased the port in Darwin while also working as an MP. So that's right. He reportedly started at the company the day before he retired Oof. from politics. He's getting more than $880,000 a year 
as a consultant. And get this, the company that actually hired Andrew Robb sneakily gave tens of thousands of dollars to Andrew Robb's fundraising fee call before the last election. Oh. So, you know, it's all good work if you can get it. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, well, it's funny because Corey Bernardi has called for a royal commission into the influence of foreign donors on Australia's political system. But I was having a look at the Australian Conservatives' website yesterday and you can join up to the party or donate money from anywhere around the world, from Afghanistan, from China, from Iraq, (laughs) from Syria, from wherever. So he's taking foreign donations. Pot kettle, mate. Yeah, mate. What's number four? Uh, So number four is the war on climate. Now, we're recording this before it comes out, but the Finkel Review, that's the review into the national electricity market by Australia's chief scientist, Alan Finkel, is being handed to state and federal energy ministers at COAG on Friday. Now, the big debate around the Finkel Review is over the LET, L-E-T, remember that, the lower emissions target. Now, the review is expected to suggest the amount of renewable energy we use in Australia to power the country should go up to 50 or 70% by 2030, and the amount of coal we use should go down. Now, Alan Finkel says that this is because the electricity sector needs to do its fair share to help bring down carbon emissions if we're going to hit our Paris climate targets. But a let or a revised energy target, uh, is more palpable for the Turnbull government than an emissions intensity scheme because you've got to remember climate policy was the reason that Malcolm Turnbull was booted as opposition leader in 2009 and replaced with Tony Abbott. Uh, Now, with all area of politics, there's a lot of conjecture about how we solve issues of energy supply in Australia. You might remember that we've had the big blackouts in South Australia and the federal government is throwing money at reviving the Snowy Hydro scheme. So enter Tony Abbott. He's doing some fear-mongering amongst the Conservatives that a lower emissions target, a let, could force power prices up. He thinks the Libs should be the party of cheap power and coal. But Labor, on the other hand, say that maybe they're willing to come to the table. They say they could take a bipartisan approach to a let as long as it doesn't have any policies that pleases climate sceptics. So... The Finkel Review will be out on Friday, then the government will formally respond, then Labor will respond to their response, and then we will go from there. What a a time. What a time. Number five is there is a guy named James Clapper, who's the former director of national intelligence under Barack Obama in the United States. This dude, bald old guy, is number one intelligence official in the country for quite a while up until Donald Trump takes office. So James Clapper was actually brought out by the Australian National University this week as a guest professor and his speech to the National Press Club absolutely unloaded on Donald Trump. There are a few things he did say that really did catch headlines around the world. He said Watergate pales in comparison to the Trump-Russia allegations. He said that Trump asked him to publicly refute allegations that Russia had meddled in the election. He said he understood if the Five Eyes Intelligent Network, which includes Canada, New Zealand and the UK, started holding back intelligence because of Trump's recent behaviour leaking to the Russians... There was a lot of shocked people in the room that Clapper had come out and gone just so far in. And it was all against the backdrop of the highly anticipated James Comey testimony, which is being held on Friday, our time. Clapper also talked about the rise of the alt-right and other fringe groups, which is the area of expertise of our guest, John Safran. 
who has just written a book called Depends What You Mean by Extremists. We both read the book, Alice. What did you think about it? Oh, the book was amazing. So basically, he spends a year hanging out with people from all different extremist groups in Australia, from the United Patriots Front, uh, Reclaim Australia, who you might know as the people that run the rallies, the Q Society, um, a guy that runs a gym and is on the side recruiting for the Israeli Defence Force, not to mention uh, ISIS supporters who are on the no-fly list, one of whom is uh, a tinny terrorist, so that was one of the guys that uh, Mm. got arrested trying to... They're on the no-fly list, and they got arrested trying to sail a boat from Queensland to Indonesia. So we sat down and had a chat with John Saffron about what hanging out with these people was like, and uh, keep an ear out for the time that he did tequila shots with (laughs) neo-Nazis. Joining the podcast this week is one of the most famous political and comedic writers and documentary makers in Australia, John Safran. John, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank for, you for inviting me in. Yeah. John has written a book um, about extremism in Australia, and it's not just really those on the far right, because I think a lot of the times when people think of extremism, they think those who are the narrow Nazis and the skinheads, but you've actually also gone into those on the left as well. You spent a year really going and hanging around with all these different sort of groups it probably seems like a terrifying prospect to most people. So why did you decide to do it? Um, well, I don't have a plan B. It's like, <laughs> like what, what do I do? This is I've kind of painted myself into a corner where this is my career. And th- there seemed to be this real, almost maybe for the first time, a real uh, happy crossover between the kind of neurotic state that so many Australians are in because they c- kind of don't know how to handle what's going on it's like oh my god there's these people and they're like from the far right and they mm. look like nazis at the very least they might be not but then also there's terrorism and then god but i don't like islamophobia but then like a bomb's gone off and ah uh, and like there's this real kind of not everyone's that in this state of unease that really reflects like how my work is always <laughs> this sort of like in a state of un- unease so yeah it was like you know, bad for the world good for the book <laughs> are we going through a moment at the moment do you think you know like this moment of extremism ah. that's sort of flowering up um what is it do you think that's causing it to manifest itself with these groups on the left and the right oh well i think with the the far right they found this opening this where what they like a part of trying to understand it is making a distinction between like the leadership and the crowd. So the crowds mm. can just be anyone, but often, or at least enough times, the leadership are like wildly radical and just have in- unpalatable views, even possibly unpalatable to the people who turn up to the rallies. So they might be and have a long-term history of being white nationalists. So they believe oh, you know, the DNA between white and black people is significantly different enough that we're all going to have to segregate. And you're just not going to get a crowd turning up to that. And so they saw this moment of what I I kind of describe as today, tonight, (laughs) anti-Islam, where it's like this thing that's sort of normal. And and it's like, oh, okay, well, I can't get away with the whole race segregation thing. And I can't get away with talking about the Jewish bankers. But I'll, I'll, f- I'll kind of frame my argument like, oh, my problem is about halal certification. And, they, and so they, and, and, and so then they kind of like call these rallies. And I think their long-term plan was to like try to upsell people to the more, hey, we've got to segregate. <laughs> segregate. So they start small and yeah, then they yeah. sell them up into the yeah. really hardcore stuff. And, and so different people and people with totally different radical views, like such as if you're like an evangelical Christian who thinks 
Jesus is about to return and my mission on earth is to try to bring about Christ and I've been anointed by God to try to have a spiritual war with Islam. Like, again, you're not going to get a crowd for that. So, again, they kind of bend their totally radical, unpalatable views into this thing of uh, they're concerned about halal certification <laughs> and kind of like some shonky shake at a mosque or something. Um, let's talk about one of the groups that re- you do go into quite a bit. It's the United Patriots Front. They're on the far right. And I want to talk about one of the main characters, I think, in the book is Blair Cottrell. Yeah. Um, you actually uh, give a pretty vivid description of him. He's got Popeye arms. You know, yeah. he's a guy who's really into working out, and he's a he's a carpenter, and he's in his everyday life. Can you can you? Oh, and also one part you actually call him one part of the One Direction of anti-Islam. <laughs> yes, because there's a lot of sort of girls who show up and actually fawn over him. Can you tell me a bit about Blair Cottrell and the UPF? Well, I, I think he's particularly interesting because. He's got a, a, a kind of a track record of being a nationalist in, and what he describes it as, I'm a nationalist who believes in standing up for my people and my people are fundamentally white European, Australians of European origin. So the Jews aren't included in that. <laughs> um, and so, and I think he's he's one of these people who, who actually wasn't before the anti-Islam movement popped up, really thought about Islam that much like because it's not really his main game so for instance i saw this footage of him where it was his first reclaim rally i hadn't turned up to the first one i got on board on the second one that and he he stumbles over like the word Islamification. like <laughs> he can't even pronounce it which is just how much this the whole islam thing hasn't really been weighing heavily on his mind that much so yeah it did become like this bizarre thing where he's leading up a group that's purporting to be like anti-islam and against islam and he doesn't really talk about islam that much because he's i contend that his main problem is the jews (laughs) but he kind of like (laughs) you don't get away with like yeah like today tonight's not going to do any story about the jews so he has to sort of like you know frame it as oh yeah yeah, i've got a problem with islam And, and and he talks a lot about how he, he and I think he's being sincere in a you know in a way where he says, listen, I actually don't think the problem is like Muslims as such. It's that uh, it's that the globalists and the multiculturalists want to bring Muslims into our country and 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 he bangs on a lot about like cultural Marxism and Marxism and you know I, I'm I'm more interested in things that have got this religion kind of coursing through it and mm. uh, just personally like politics is great, fine and or whatever. So. Uh, as soon as he sort of like kind of week goes off on his Marxist rants, I, I start like tuning out a bit, you know, like because like it's like oh, okay, great, yeah. great, another guy just rabbiting on about <laughs> politics. If I wanted this, I'd watch Q and I don't, I, I didn't come out to hang out with these neo Nazis <laughs> to at listen a pub, to a Tony Jones, yeah, to listen to something that's essentially like as tedious as watching Q and A. Um, at one point, he does talk about, you know, reading the protocols of the elders of Zion, and he talks about highborns and lowborns. Yeah. In many ways, he's actually adopting the language of Nazis. He really yeah. is. And, yeah. And at one stage, he also talks about why he doesn't really see the group as neo-Nazis, because yeah. he thinks that that's confined to history. What they're talking about is yeah. different. But the ideas are kind of the same, right? There's, a, yeah, there's so different th- classes of people who are more genetically blessed. Yes. Yeah, so that's how he weasels out of it. He says that to be a Nazi, you had to be in Europe during World War II. And so 
you just can't be a Nazi. Like you can dress up in a Nazi uniform and go hail Hitler and be reading out Mein Kampf to uh, a crowd and you still can't be a Nazi. So that's like his weasel kind of way of weaving around it. And But there's, there's other leaders of the UPF who I'd say are more matter, like, you know, like, like for, they do have a problem with Islam and, it, and it's more direct. But, it, but in his case, it is this sort of slightly suspicious thing where he doesn't really talk about Islam that much, and, but, yeah, talks about the global puppet masters. <laughs> um, at one point in the book, uh, you are actually shooting tequila with yeah. these guys yeah. in a pub in country Victoria. What was that like? What's it like to get drunk with, uh, with people who don't see themselves as Nazis but have those ideas? Uh, it was... God, I'm, I'm trying to think... I, I, you know that expression, in for a penny, in for a pound? <laughs> yeah. Where, yeah, so there was this thing, I'm writing this book, and I sort of know, just b- based on work I've done in the past, like I can't be the guy sitting across the road on the park bench looking at the Nazis across the road. Like, there's You've no... you get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like... And, I, and so I guess my instinct was, listen, I know this is really weird and dangerous but i just kind of have to do it like i I don't have a plan b and and so i did hang out with him and and a lot of that that was when i first realized that it every project social media or the internet like moves on and i have to like adapt around it (laughs) so back in the real early days when i started you could pretty much even though the internet was there you could sort of Google wasn't as efficient or it wasn't there. So you could kind of go, I can rock up anywhere, like especially overseas, and no one's going to know who I am. And people just didn't Google everything there. And, and then suddenly it reached this point where it's like, I have to readapt because now anywhere in the world, if like, there's, you know, I set up an interview with anyone, the, the first thing they're going to do is type in John Safran. Mm. And number one search result is... Uh, you know, scheming little troublemaking little prankster, you know, who sets up interviews and then double crosses the interview subject. And, you know, that's like number one search result. And, um, yeah, so I just had to, like, adapt around that. And similarly with this, I just realised uh, social media has gone to, uh, you know, such an extent that at any point, like, people are just pointing cameras at you because they see me and they, they might recognise me and then they can upload you and just put you in any context and and so that was one of the first things where i was like uh like uh i guess i just have to keep on sort of interviewing these guys from the upf even though you know you know lord knows how you know it's going to be perceived or whatever and Mm. you just have to like i just have to wear that what kind of blokes are they i mean are they the kind of people that you would see at the pub amongst you on a friday night uh do they blend in or do they they stick out Oh, uh, I think what, 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 one of the things I remember that's not in the book, what, hanging out with them that night, is when it came to 2am and the alcohol was starting to wear off, and this we'd moved to this little after party in this little house, and I was like, I seem to like strip away their radical politics. It's like, oh, Christ, I wouldn't want to turn up here every weekend. You know, like... It's a bit sad. Yeah, but just like, you know when you're at a party and like everything starts to wear off? And it's like, oh, what am I doing here? And my God, I've got to make sure this isn't my life. <laughs> and so there was a bit of that. And, and actually other people would bring to my book. But I mean, I don't know, like everyone, everyone's complicated. Like often people have senses of humour, for instance. Uh, so especially in Australia. So that, that, you know, like if you're just expecting, oh, just because someone's 
a radical or on the far right or they're an ISIS supporter that they're not funny or they don't, you know... That's can not, they be funny? Can, can Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and they and like lots of them knew who I was and they liked my stuff or whatever. And so, you know, that's flattering, you know, but I'm not sure I'll, I'll put that on the, you know, the, the DVD cover or the, <laughs> or the book cover or whatever. But, but yeah, like, because I've been doing this for a while, I'm really... Uh, like really zen to drag the Buddhists in on it with this whole thing that just because people are dangerous, like they can be murderers, like someone could be a murderer and, and it's like, doesn't mean they're not interesting or funny or mm. anything else. So, yeah. Uh, what about the centrality of social media to these groups? Um, Facebook clearly is their ground zero um, rather than say Twitter or anything like that. Yeah. What is it about Facebook do you think is so important to these groups? Well, uh, talking about the uh, internet net more broadly, is that back in the old days before the internet, if you were radical and you photocopied pamphlets, they just look wrong. Like, this, you know, it'd be like weird photocopying, the type's too small, and so it's a bit wrong. And, and like, and or if you put out like a, a self published manifesto, again, there'd just be something wrong it's about it. Laid up it. wrong. It'd be like, like yeah, weirdly like, laid up. With, yeah, just yeah. slightly wrong. And you go, hang on, this isn't a Penguin Random House book, <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this Unabomber manifesto. But now, with the internet and with, like with templates, everything can look normal. And and that's the same with Facebook. All you have to do is like not screw up your little, uh, you know, picture. And and you can come across like, oh, respectable and like what, what does anyone know? And there's so much power in the unknowable where people don't know whether there's, is this like one guy sitting in his basement and actually he doesn't even really care that much about this stuff. He's just half a troll or something or, or or is this is this a movement are there hundreds of people and what does it mean that this page has got uh 10,000 likes does yeah. that mean does that mean we should worry that's 10,000 people in the street or it doesn't or people just like these things for whatever reason or they buy likes or like it, like it's just impossible to to figure out and there's so much power in um sort of like people not knowing what's kind of going on behind the Facebook page and 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 but but that's how and 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 also I guess the other side with Facebook is you can really try to brand yourself and until you kind of reach hit the streets, people are going to go by how you're branding yourself. So in the case of Reclaim Australia, they're really trying to brand themselves as oh we're basically like Dick Smith, like we just believe <laughs> like uh, Aussies for Aussie jobs and aren't you sick of political correctness and wave flags and everything? And when they're kind of in that bubble just online they could build and build and build and then but when, when they hit the streets like it worked for a while like oh this is just normal or whatever but then like the cracks started to show and it's like oh that guy is kind of a nazi <laughs> and then and then they kind of suffered ironically some of the far right they suffered the same uh consequences that if uh, a muslim w woman wears like the full hijab or burqa or whatever it's like there's this whole kind of patch of huge patch of like mainstream Aussies and they just are real suspicious of weirdness and strangeness. And it's like, so as soon as like Blair started coming across as like, oh, he's strange. What the hell is he talking about Marxism and the like this weird? Like, uh, yeah. And, and, and so the sort of the crowd started, started to drop off when people realized it was weird. And at one point, this guy associated with the United Patriots Front was actually arrested and it's over all the news that he's being kind of 
brought in by the police and they raid his house and you see that on the news and that really signaled it's like hang on this is not dick smith you know mm. dick smith's house doesn't get raided by the police and 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 that and then i noticed a rally after that it was it kind of the families had all left and it was young men who just wanted to punch on what are isis supporters like <laughs> just as people well the ones i spoke to were converts and so yeah then it, there's there's an element where they're like they're Aussies, and, and and like one one particular dude I was hanging with, who subsequently uh, got arrested and he's now awaiting uh, trial because the Australian Federal Police alleged that he was trying to leave the country with some mates to because they'd had their passports uh, revoked and that they were trying to get to some other country and then from there from that country they'd go on and try to join a ISIS related group. Anyway, I hung out with that guy for a year. <laughs> so, I was like when I found out that happened, I was like I was, first of all I was kind of annoyed because I was like why didn't you invite me along for the road trip? Cuz they was I like they, I would have come along. They with went my from Melbourne to, to Far North Queensland and I was like god, that would have been like a cool kind of do 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 sort of like national Lampoon vacation kind of stretch in my book. And uh, National Lampoons go to Syria. Yeah. So then he, but I was like hanging out with him and he was like into Monty Python because he, he didn't convert till uh, I think his early 20s or, you know, around 20, maybe a bit before. And so he'd grown up with the same things I'd grown up with, like Mad Magazine and, and yeah, so it, so it was like that's an example of the sort of, the, the the clashes and and you know like he liked making prank phone calls and, and it was like so the, so it was weird but I, I guess in in the case of him it's that he was under the spell of scripture and under the spell of this idea that the the messianic age is about to happen the Muslim version of it and he just believed it and and it's like if you believe that so strongly and you and your reading of scripture is that. I have to go and help bring out about this messianic age and all these things in the scripture that are saying it's going to take this battle is going to take part in uh, take place. Uh, uh, that's what's happening now in Iraq and Syria. They just sort of it's it's hard to know how to argue against him. Like, what do you say? Because because if his contention is that oh, there's too much Islamophobia or things like that, you could go okay. Well, or, or there's too much unemployment amongst. But it's just under the spell, you know, um, of this belief. And so it's, it's really hard to know what to say in response to that. And, and I guess that's why you can balance two things. That doesn't stop you from being a Monty Python fan. Although I kept on trying to get to the bottom of, like, Life of Brian is just so much about, oh, be careful about following, like... False the, idols. False yeah. idols. I just could not... And I kept on, like, trying to kind of poke away with him about that. Like, how do you like Life of Brian... But you're also, like, allegedly, according to the Australian Federal Police, trying to... Join uh, ISIS. Yes. Yeah. In many ways, the, what that stitches all of these people together is that they're charismatic. You know, that they actually yeah. have some sort of charisma that they can talk to someone who might feel a little bit disenfranchised and, and yeah. get them along for the ride. I think it's, um, I think it's interesting, though, that the UPF example, they tried to create a political party, yeah. Fortitude, and it didn't really work. What happened there? I, they couldn't get the 500 signatures, which was, I felt strange. I was like, how can you just not get five? Because you didn't have to pay any money or whatever. And they could not get 500 people to join there to sign a piece of paper. 
So the, uh, a combination of like bad admin. <laughs> I think if you're going to like try to start the Fourth Reich, I think you need like good, <laughs> good, good admin. Because isn't that what like the Nazis? They had good admin. They had like IBM machines and like lots of paperwork and and and. But I also think again, like what I said before, like these. Radical groups are always going to have a problem in Australia if they come across as too weird because people don't want weird. And so it has to be, it has to look normal or it has to look Aussie and, and regular. And, and like the far right can look not Aussie and regular. Do you think that there's a, these groups, especially on the right, are they coalescing around a certain political movement are they getting around One Nation and Pauline Hanson or are they more likely to go, yeah, but in the end we, we're Tony Abbott supporters or we're Peter Dutton supporters because they clearly can't organise themselves into a strong political movement. Yeah. Are they attaching themselves onto different political parties? I think they, I think they reject like Labour and Liberal and maybe they, yeah, I think some of them support Pauline Hanson, like they're pragmatic and it's just, they'd be like, oh, yeah, well, you've got to vote for someone. Mm. But... Uh, but even that, there's all these kind of such there's such like conflicts of interest with people on the on the kind of radical right, and so 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 for instance, you have someone like Pastor Daniel Nalia, who's a Sri Lankan immigrant and also, but a big evangelical Christian, and so he's worried about Islam, and then you've got the United Patriots front, and and they had a bit of a loose coalition going on. But then when there was the Syrian refugee crisis, uh, for someone like Pastor Daniel Nalia, he just, he doesn't want Muslims coming into Australia, but he's happy for like Middle Eastern Christians. Not only is he happy, he was put on the public record. He says, I'm opening my house, I'm opening my church, and I've organised for other churches and houses across Australia to uh, open open up so uh, Middle Eastern refugees, the non-Muslim ones, can come in and we'll house them. Like that's how... And then, but then you got the UPF, and they don't care that these Middle Easterners are Christian or whatever. And like, so you had Sherman Burgess from the UPF, or he then was in the UPF, and him just going, "No, we don't want we don't want the the brown Christians. We don't want the Middle Eastern Christians or the Middle Eastern Muslims." So, the, the, these sort of rifts develop, and they're kind of unsustainable. We've had a, a terror attack earlier this week that Malcolm Turnbull called a terror attack and there's always when that happens there's always at least three or four days in which there's kind of media hysteria around refugees around um, you know brown people Um, where do you see Australia going when it comes to treatment of um, ethnic communities like where where are we headed are you hopeful or are you not not so hopeful well I think it's definitely going to be confusing with uh these more right-wing groups like uh, like Corey's party, what's mm, that called? The Australian Conservatives. Because I, I was at the Melbourne Writers' Festival on a panel with uh, David Marr, who's written this long essay about uh, Pauline Hanson supporters, and he said that, like, on certain things, they're, you know, very uh, right-wing, but on other things, they're just not. And one of the things they're just not, this is according to him, Pauline Hanson supporters in general, is, like, they don't really care about religion and so they're not like christians or passionate christians who and so Corey's party could be uh, unless it manages to hide that side of itself which is clearly there like he's clearly coming part of him is coming from a, a christian perspective and uh, in, unless they hide that i reckon like voters are going to be 
voters he thinks he can get might be uh, sus and sceptical of him. But, yeah, I, I don't know where... I, I, I wrote this book in a totally hectic state, <laughs> which I think has advantages in that it really reflects... Like, like the book ends on this, ah! <laughs> and, and, and which I couldn't fake. Like, I'm really bad at, like, going, oh, I'm going to pretend... I'm feeling like I just don't know how to do it. All I can do is like blurt into a dictaphone, and then later when I'm writing it, listen back and like recreate it. Anyway, so I I just think I I left really negative, like because that's what I was feeling at the time. I was feeling like there's just going to be really bad stuff going down, like uh, and almost like these plot twists we can't even imagine yet. And but since then, I've kind of rather than hanging out with radicals i've been hanging out just with people down the street like at the cafe and talking to the people at the cafe you know and i'm going oh hang on there's all these normal people here that i wasn't hanging out with for 18 months and yeah they're kind of normal so so maybe yeah maybe if i would have kind of put a bit more of that in the book (laughs) but it was too late it got printed so i i i I reckon there's going to be plot twists we can't even imagine like in the way that no one ever expected donald trump to get in but yeah, I, I think I think it's more likely that Australia's going to work shit out between non-Muslim Australians and Muslim Australians before it's worked out between Aboriginal Australians and non-Aboriginal Australians. Sorry Ge- to dep- <laughs> depress you, Tad. Like that's another thing that yeah. the book's funny, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, this is like like yeah, it's just a, a and it's a rollicking adventure, and it was kind of cobbled together based on what I thought was like funny and adventurous and yeah. and strange and. As, as opposed to thinking, hmm, how do I make a think piece? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is an absolute page turner, and I really do recommend all our listeners go out and buy it. It's called Depends What You Mean by Extremist. It's from John Safran. It's his second book. John, thank you so much for being on the podcast. No, thank you very much. Appreciate it. I like Big Wama. I like Big Wama. I like Big That was John Safran. His book, Depends What You Mean by Extremist, is out now, published by Penguin. Uh, my favourite quote from the book, Mark. Uh, do you was, have a favourite um, quote of the book? I do, yeah. it's It was um, about uh, one of the the rallies, the Reclaim Australia rallies that he went to, and he talks about an emotional man with bushy eyebrows who says that if a mosque is built in Bendigo, then the foundation of Australia will be lost forever. And, and the reason that he says this is because Muslims sometimes prey on the street outside mosques, and if you block off the street, what if you've got a child with an egg or nut allergy and they go into anaphylactic shock? How is the ambulance <laughs> going to get to the child? And so John writes, that dastardly Muslim peanut allergy connection, you really can reverse park anything into your belief system, which I think is just an amazing, just an amazing idea. There was also a guy at a Reclaim Australia rally that joked to John that when Sharia law comes in, he'll take two wives, Pauline Hanson and Jackie Lambie. So I'm uh, really keen to <laughs> ask Jackie Lambie if she'd be up for that. La la la. All right, now, just before we wrap things up, we've got time for a quick bin deuce. Uh, Mark, what was one story you think didn't get enough attention this week? Yeah, look, I will be really quick, but it's about the government softening the ground to regulate the internet. Now, we've had, obviously, these awful attacks in London and Melbourne over the last seven days. And taking his lead from the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, Malcolm Turnbull actually this week on Monday said that companies like Apple and Facebook, which operate iMessage and WhatsApp, which are wildly popular messaging platforms on your phone, had to give freer access to their encrypted platform to security agencies. Mm -hmm. So on Monday night, Christian Porter then goes on Q&A, the social services minister, 
And he echoed those sentiments, suggesting that social media networks needed to bear some moral responsibility when there are attacks that take place, while Libertarian Senator David Leinhelm had a good line in reply, saying that blaming the internet for the attacks is like blaming the telephone for robbers conspiring to rob a bank. (laughs) Now... Anyway, I want people to watch this space, though, because there hasn't really been a national discussion about new online regulations and what clamping down on end-to-end encryption would actually look like. Like, would there be backdoors into these things? But interestingly, what are the apps most loved by ministers down in Canberra? Yes, WhatsApp. There's a lot of discussion about FOIing these kinds of groups as well and discussions because technically you should be able to FOI, uh, you know, ministers' diaries and and correspondence about certain things. But a lot of FOI requests uh, have been rejected on the basis that there is no, con- like the government doesn't have control over the private messaging apps that people use. So it's quite, it's going to be really interesting as to what happens. It will be interesting. Alice, what's your binge juice this week? Okay, my binge juice is about women. Now, stick with me. Is it really? (laughs) The gender pay gap, Mark. What do you know about it? Uh, I know that it's a myth propagated by feminists to make (laughs) my pay packet smaller. Okay, well, uh, all you need to know, Mark, is that it exists. In 1997, the gender pay gap was 17%. In 2016, it was 16.2%. So... Things haven't changed in 20 years. Now, there was a report released this week that found that six out of 10 Aussies work in an industry dominated by one gender and the jobs dominated by women, retail, hospitality, aged care, childcare. Look, they generally paid less than those dominated by men. This isn't news, right? We kind of know this. But the question is, what is being done to fix the gender pay gap? Or can anything be done? Labor reckons we need a national strategy, uh, including better flexible work provisions, extending paid parental leave, maybe paying super to people on paid parental leave, and making uh, gender pay equality an objective of the Fair Work Act. But the Liberals and the Nationals disagree. They say there's already stuff being done uh, to narrow the pay gap, and what is in place currently is adequate. But I think maybe the statistics would contradict that statement. The Minister for Women, Michaelia Cash, basically said she'd look at the report, but she's not going to commit to doing anything. Uh, There's a bunch of other kind of interesting things happening in the women equality space in Parliament at the moment. Nick Xenophon Senator Sky Kokoshki-Moore has been pushing for an if-not-why-not policy. So that means that government boards, who have a target of 40% of women sitting on their boards, would have to front up and say... This is how many women we have sitting on our board. And if they don't reach the target, they have to explain why not. And they're not going to be punished if they haven't hit it. But it's just basically a mechanism put in place to see are they just not looking for women or are there no women out there in certain areas? And and that that's the, that's the case for, for, for all of the different government departments and different government boards. Um, but the problem is that the information isn't going to be released publicly. Instead, ministers take their government boards and, and their government departments to cabinet, which only has two women in it, and they tell cabinet how, these, how the boards are going and whether they've hit their 40% targets. But, like, what are the two women... On in cabinet going to do about it saying oh you men oh you're not doing enough and if, <laughs> if there's no public accountability then how do you know that anything is being done and progress is being made so that's a little bit bleak mark but um look that's the way it is uh the glass ceiling exists so does the gender pay gap and everyone should stay woke about it everyone stay woke that's really it's a good way to end this this week's episode yeah basically that's it just stay be alert uh, but uh, not alarmed if you see women in the workforce. Uh, so 
<laughs> I want to say a big thank you to our producer, Nick Ray, Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes, and the whole pod team. We want you guys to get involved and tell us what you think we should be talking about. Mark, I uh, have been reading some reviews and uh, people are really harsh on the gallery whispers, but it, it will be it will be back next week. Um, you can go to <laughs> buzzfeed.com slash is it on, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. When is the next episode coming out? It is coming out next week. And Mark, finally, the question I ask you every episode, what do you reckon, mate? Is it on? There's a distinct lack of on this week, but... A distinct oh. lack of onness. <laughs> but it's funny because as you as you like you wake up and you see headlines that read things like Abbott challenges Turnbull on emissions target, it's like we've woken up in 2009 because in 2009, how Tony Abbott became Liberal Party leader is that he rolled Malcolm Turnbull when he was trying to compromise on climate change. Are we are we going to jump back in a time machine? Are we going there? Like who knows? Who knows? On the Labor side of things, I did see a few a few scuttlebutty comments that. Um, uh, for the Midwinter Ball, which is happening in Canberra next week, which is a charity fundraiser that uh, politicians uh, put themselves up for auction. You can have tea with Malcolm Turnbull. You can hang out in Hollywood with Julie Bishop. But um, Bill Shorten and Tanya Plibersek are doing a joint a joint uh, auction where you can have a wine with them where, weirdly enough, it notes that they'll only buy the first bottle of wine. Bit scabby labour, I reckon. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, some people were saying, oh, well, maybe uh, Bill is a bit worried about Tanya and that's why they're putting themselves up for Ooh, auction together instead of, about the you know, sentence. putting themselves up separately. Mmm, mmm, mm. gallery whispers. <laughs> gallery whispers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate, I'll chat to you next week. Bye. All right, bye. Bye.